You can turn in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. If you've been here with us in previous weeks, hopefully that's a little familiar because we have been memorizing Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, today we get to see a little bit of a teaser until the rest of the passage that we haven't memorized yet. Ephesians chapter 3, in a moment we're going to be starting reading in verse 14. Have you been asked the deserted island question before? You know what that deserted island question is? If you were stranded on a deserted island and could only have one item with you, what would it be? And there's some bizarre answers to this. Some of you might cheat and say, I want a fully equipped airport so I can fly off. That's not allowed. (laughs) Some of you may say, I just want my favorite book because a deserted island sounds awesome, right? But whatever it is that you choose as your one item, that's the one thing that you think you just can't live without. So if you're limited to one thing, make sure it's good. Imagine this. If you were granted just one prayer request to fuel your Christian life, what would you pray for? Now, thankfully, that's not the case, is it? We can come boldly to the throne of grace whenever we're in a time of need, and we can share our burdens, great and small, our cares, our worries, with God without any concern of wearing Him out. But, just for the sake of argument, if you were granted only one prayer request, what would you pray for? No, you can't pray for a million dollars. Uh, You can't wish for a hundred more wishes. That's against the rules. Just one request. If you had one request, what would it be? Well, make sure it's good. If you were to pick one out of Scripture, look no further than Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. And it's here in this prayer of the Apostle Paul that we find a goldmine of gospel truth and fuel for Christian living. Let's read this passage together as we ask the question, what are you praying for? Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Some of you may be entering this building today having forgotten the gospel. You know it. You've accepted it. But you're distracted. Your life is overrun with noise and with busyness and you're chasing after things and you're not even sure if they're worth chasing, but you're chasing them and you're distracted and your life is consumed with all this busyness and you've forgotten the gospel. And you realize that the gospel of Jesus has very little impact 
or very much of your attention. It's not a very important thing in your life right now. Sure, it's important. Yes, the gospel's great. It's incredible. It changes everything. But right now, it's not changing much. You've forgotten it. Some of you may be entering this room today having realized your own weakness in living the gospel. You know what the Bible says. You know what the scripture says about loving your spouse, your kids. You know what it says about your speech and your work and your purity. But you have come woefully short. And you realize that the flesh seems to be winning, not the spirit. You're weak. And if you have forgetfulness of the gospel or weakness to live it, pay careful attention to the prayer that we're going to be looking at today. As we read through these verses, I'm sure you realize there is a lot here. There's so much rich truth and so much practical application that we can draw from this text. And I look forward to walking through this text with you. And if this was your one prayer to pray, make it this one. But before we jump into the passage, let's consider why this prayer is so important for the book of Ephesians. If you were to divide the book of Ephesians into two parts, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians are all doctrinal. These are the, 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 it's gospel doctrine from the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1, all through to the end of chapter 3. These are statements of fact regarding the gospel message and its impact on your life. You don't see a single command in these three chapters other than the command to simply remember certain gospel truths. And then you turn over to chapter 4, and Ephesians 4 through 6 are practical. We could call these gospel instruction, these exhortations that are built on the gospel truth of Ephesians 1 through 3. And this is a pattern that Paul follows all throughout his epistles. He, he lays out these gospel truths first, and then the applications and the commands and the instructions are all built on the truth of the gospel. And this is what we see in the entire book of Ephesians. If you were to look in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he starts off by saying, I therefore, and you've heard the phrase, if you see the word therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. Why is he saying therefore? Based off everything I just said in chapters 1 through 3, everything that the gospel is, therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The prayer we find in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 is placed right in between these two sections. It concludes the doctrine and it precludes the instructions. And consider how this text leads toward this prayer and then the text flows out of this prayer. We see our prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. We see the gospel doctrine in chapters 1 through 3 leading to this prayer. And then we see the rest of the book flowing out of this prayer. How do we see that? Well, to, to get a sense of where, where this prayer is placed in Scripture, I want you to flip back to ch- uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, you'll see an incredible picture of how the gospel transforms the heart. It says, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked that we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and he has raised us up, and he has seated us in heavenly places in Christ. And it continues and talks about how 
by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we see how the gospel transforms the heart. And then in verses 11 through 22, he talks about how the gospel unites the church. Because you individually have been saved by Christ, therefore, verse 11, remember that once you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And in the following verses, he expounds how how Jew and Gentile have been united in Christ into one body, the church. So we see the gospel transform the heart. And then we see the gospel unite the church. And then if you go down to the end of verse 22, I'm sorry, the beginning of of chapter 3, after talking about the, uni- the unity of the church, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. And then he goes on a divinely inspired rabbit trail for the rest of the chapter. And then, down in verse 14, he picks up his original thought and says, For this reason. He says, he was about to pray, and then he, 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 he remembers something, and then he talks about that, and then in verse 14, he goes back to his, for this reason, I bow my knees. So why are we saying all this? Everything from chapter 2 down to our prayer in chapter 3, verse 14, is flowing into this prayer. He says, when I think about these truths, that the gospel transformed the heart, and that the gospel unites the church, for this reason, I pray. Because when I think about these things, I am motivated to pray something. And then we see how this prayer flows into the rest of the book. If you follow concluding our prayer in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, we see once again how the gospel unites the church, but this time it's on the practical side. He starts off in chapter 4, Therefore, after he concludes this prayer, he gives practical instruction of what it looks like for the church to be unified. Verse 16 says, For whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He's taking the gospel doctrine he's praying that leads him to prayer, and then flowing out of that prayer, he gives practical gospel instruction on what it means for the church to be unified by the gospel. And then continuing on, you see the practical instruction of how the gospel transforms the heart, starting in chapter 4, verse 17. It says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And if you read the, following, the, the, the verses to follow, he talks about putting off the old man and being renewed in the spirit of your mind and putting on the new man. So you see this funnel leading toward this prayer, and then you see this practical instruction flowing out of that prayer. Why go, all, go through all of that? To simply say, this prayer is really important. This prayer lies at the core of the entire book. It's saying that when you consider the gospel truths, it should lead you to pray this prayer. And when you consider all the practical instructions of Ephesians 4 through 6, it should be fueled by this prayer. This prayer lies at the center of the book. 
If you are limited to one prayer request, make it this one. What are you praying for? Well, what's the request? In verse 14, it says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. In the following verses, there's a lot of different things, but there's actually one core request that the rest of the phrases flow out of. There's a lot of flowing going on. I understand that, but that's kind of the Apostle Paul. That's what he does. What's the one core request? Well, we find the one simple request in the second half of verse 16. He bows his knees, he prays that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through the Spirit in the inner man. Here's the request for power, to be strengthened. And we see in this request our need for strength. What about the strength? Strengthened with what? What are we to be strengthened by? What does the passage say? Strengthened with might or with power. Now, this may sound redundant. Of course, you'd be strengthened with power. Why, why would he say, why not just say strengthened? Why strengthened with power? Well, he's talking about a specific power. We'll find out later on in verse 20 that this is a power that is at work within us. But what is this power specifically? We actually find the answer in another, in another prayer that Paul prays back in chapter 1. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. In another prayer of Paul to the Ephesian Christians, he prays in verse 19 that, that they would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. Verse 20 explains what is that power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. When Paul says, I pray that you be strengthened with power, what, Paul is he, what power is he referring to? The same power that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. This is resurrection power. As Christians, based off of all the doctrine we see in Ephesians 1 through 3, you are united to Christ. And as being united to Christ, you are given His resurrection power. This is a supernatural power we are to ask for, not, a, not one sourced in our own flesh. We see that we are strengthened, we should ask to be strengthened with His power, with His might. But strengthened by whom? Back in Ephesians chapter 4, what does he say? Verse 16, be strengthened with might through his spirit. We are to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit that has been given us as Christians. We are given his spirit at the moment of salvation. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We are to pray for strength by his might through his spirit, but strengthened where? The passage says, in the inner man. While God is not concerned with our physical strength and our physical health, he's not unconcerned with those things, that is not his primary concern. Paul does not ask that God would strengthen you in the outer man with physical strength. 
He asks that God would strengthen you by his spirit in your inner man. How many of our prayer requests are centered on the outer man, on our physical strength? Lord, change my situation, change my health, change my trials. We fixate on our physical health and well-being so much so that we might even deceive ourselves into thinking that God is most concerned with our physical health. We might even go further and conclude that the inner man problems that we have, the turmoil, the anxiety, the fear, the sin, we may even conclude that those inner man problems are attributed to outer man issues, health circumstances, relationships. And so we pray, Lord, change these outer man things so that my inner man can be better. That's not what Paul prays for here. It's not wrong to pray for health. It's not wrong to pray for deliverance from trials. Like we said at the beginning, God hears all of our prayers and He he loves to answer our prayers. But what's the most important thing when we consider the gospel and the impact that it has on our life and how it strengthens us The strength of the gospel is focused primarily on your inner man. We all know what it's like to lose strength, to no longer be in your prime. The military veteran who was once able to run into the line of fire, now struggling with sickness and weakness that comes with age. An athlete, once capable of these superhuman feats, now sidelined with a career-ending injury. And if they were granted one wish, one prayer request, they might ask, give me my strength back. Give me my physical ability back. But the gospel enters our lives and declares that there's something you need more. Something that injury, age, sickness cannot touch. You need strength in your inner Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, where Paul says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Do you notice that the gospel does nothing to stop the outer self from wasting away? It says you're changed by the gospel and and your inner self is being renewed even while your outer self is wasting away day by day. And you might hear preachers on TV talk about how the gospel changes the outer self and gospel gives you wealth and health and riches and all of these things. And the Bible says, no, that's not the case. Your outer self could be wasting away every single day, but what does the gospel do? It changes and transforms your inner man even as your outer man is wasting away. The power of the gospel is directed toward your soul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9-10, through 10, Paul says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, and therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses." so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And you think, wait a minute. Why doesn't the gospel remove weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities? Why would I be content in those those things? The Bible says it was never meant to take those away. It wasn't meant to solve physical weakness, but it does offer Christ's strength in the midst 
of those weaknesses, in the midst of those insults and persecutions and calamities? What should you pray for today? Lord, by your Spirit, strengthen my inner man. Strengthen my soul. Yes, we can pray for our physical health. Yes, we can pray for all these outer things. What should be the most important thing? When was the last time you said, Lord, strengthen my soul? By your Spirit, through your power, strengthen my soul. Well, what's the reason for this strength? We see the core prayer request that we should pray for strength. But just in case we don't take that strength and use it for our own purposes, which we can be very inclined to do, Lord, give me strength so that I can do whatever I want. So give me strength, Lord. Strengthen my spirit so that I can pursue my dreams, that I can, I can get ahead, that I can, can, I can assert my own power and dominance. We mistakenly think that we can use the power of God for whatever we want, but this passage, this prayer tells us that God's strength is meant to be used for something. And this strength is to produce something in our lives. It gives us a direction and it gives us a goal. And we see a reason for strength in verses 17 through 19. And again, in typical Pauline fashion, he strings together a series of all these connected phrases that are all rooted to this singular prayer request. Lord, give me strength. So we see the prayer request there that he would grant you to be strengthened. And then out of that, he says, so that, for that purpose, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. So that you may comprehend the love of Christ. And so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's lots of other words in there. We're going to get to those. But here you see the progression. Lord, give me strength so that Christ can dwell in my hearts, so that I can comprehend more fully the love of Christ, so that I can be filled with the fullness of God. The main request to be strengthened leads to the end result of being filled with the fullness of God. Well, what does that mean? What is this goal? What does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? Well, we see this term fullness used two other places in the book of Ephesians. We see it, first of all, in Ephesians 1, verses 22 through 23, where he says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is his body, which is the fullness of of God. And so we see from this passage that this fullness is, is located in, in the church. It is, it is meant to be directed in, this, in, the, in the context of local church because the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We see this idea of fullness one other place in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, in our practical section of the book, where Paul says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the what? Fullness of Christ. What is the fullness of Christ equated to in this passage? Christian maturity in the context of the church. So, Paul says, I pray that you would be strengthened so that ultimately you would be mature in the church. That the church would grow up into maturity as you reflect more and more of Christ's character. So if we just simplify this prayer request, it's, Lord, give me strength to become more like you. And then everything in between is the means by which we attain that maturity. 
So you're ready to dig into the nuts and bolts of this passage. I'll try to show the progression clearly so we don't get too down into the weeds, but there's so much rich truth here as we look at this most important prayer request. In this reason for strength, we see three purposes, three reasons. First of all, strength so that we may gladly submit to Christ. He says that we would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, so that, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What does he mean by this? He's talking to Christians, right? Christians already have Christ dwelling in them. So in what sense is he praying that Christians would have Christ dwell in them? Well, Paul actually uses a unique word for dwell here. The normal Greek word for dwell is oikeo, but Paul here uses a different word, katoikeo, which is taking dwell plus the prefix down. Dwell down. Or maybe you could consider it as settle down. Make your permanent dwelling. Be at home. Paul is praying that we would be strengthened by the Spirit in our inner man so that Christ may be completely at home in your hearts. Think of it this way. Think of it in the difference between renting a house and owning a house. When you rent a house, do you have the liberty to renovate, knock down walls, and put an addition on the back? You better not do that. Your landlord would not be very pleased with you. But once you buy your own place, you settle down and you get to work. And maybe you have a a fixer-upper. With, with ugly paint, and, 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 and the plumbing is horrible, and the roof needs repairing, and it's in bad shape. But you take that, and little by little, you start to change it and make it your own, because it's yours. And eventually, the house looks nothing like it once did, because you are at home in this place, and you are making it yours. That's the sense in which Paul asks that Christ would settle down, make his home in our hearts. This is what Christ wants to do. This is what happens when the gospel starts to transform the soul. Christ comes in, and he starts to make your heart his home. As one commentator puts it, that Christ may may become the controlling factor in attitudes and conduct. How does Christ dwell in our hearts? passage says, by faith. We need to ask God for the strength to have a dependent, trusting attitude toward Christ so that he may be at home in our hearts. In other words, we pray for strength, not so that we can take back control of our own lives. Have you ever felt like your life is out of control? And you say, Lord, give me the strength so that I can take the reins back and have control over my life. That's not the purpose of Christ's strength through the gospel in your inner man. The purpose of the power of the gospel is to allow him to have control over your life. Christ bought you by his blood. He bought the house. He saved you so that you might become his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. What are you praying for? Pray that, that God would strengthen you by his spirit so that Christ may make his, himself at home in your heart. And what happens when Christ dwells in your heart by faith? What is the purpose for that request or the result of that request? Well, the passage tells us. 
We pray for strength so that we might gladly submit. And secondly, we pray for strength so that we might fully experience and grasp the love of Christ. When Christ makes himself at home in our hearts, when we allow him to have control over our lives, what happens next? We might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is the result of Christ being at home in your heart. Christ wants to be at home in your heart not so that he can make your life miserable, not so that you can prove your love to him, but the purpose for which he wants to be at home in your heart is so that you can comprehend his love for you. Yes, you know that Jesus loves you, for the Bible tells you so. You know that he died on the cross to save you, and greater love hath no man than this. But Jesus tells us in this passage, there is so much more to my love. And we can receive his love in the gospel without fully comprehending and grasping the, the magnitude, the immensity of Christ's love. And this is what Paul prays for, if you could only grasp the love of Christ. And given the, the, the sequence of these requests and, and things that build off of it, the only way that we can grasp the love of Christ is if we gladly submit to Christ. But notice it says, as he, as he asked this prayer, that Christ may dwell in your hearts, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend the love of Christ. Being rooted and grounded talks about this present reality that we already possess. It says, you Christians, you are already rooted and grounded in love. He uses this image of, 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 of agriculture and construction, the idea of being rooted deep, of having a firm foundation, that when you accept Christ as your Savior, you are firmly established in the love of Christ. And if you doubt that, just go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and read that carefully. Notice also that this is not asking that we might receive strength so that Christ may dwell in our hearts so that we might receive more of his love. That's not what it's asking. It's not saying you need to pray that God would give you more of his love. Why? Because you already have it. You're already rooted and grounded in his love. He could not love you any more than he already does as he proved to you when he died on the cross for you. What's the prayer? Not that we might receive more of his love, but that we might more fully comprehend that love. Do you realize how much Christ loves you? Sure, you pray to prayer. Sure, you, you, you profess him as your savior. But have you fully grasped what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge? Notice also that we are to comprehend this love with all the saints. What's the context in which we comprehend this love? It's together in the church. God designed this to be communal. This is all done within the context of his body. That is why we gather together so that we, as his children, might for, more fully comprehend the love of Christ. Paul has just spent three chapters expounding all of the dimensions of the love of Christ. And then he bows his knees and he prays that we would just see it. That we would grasp it. That we would realize how much Christ loves us. 
And it is only through our, our glad submission to him as we say, Lord, my heart is your home. Come in and do with it what you will. Transform me into whatever you see fit so that I might fully comprehend your love. Sometimes we think of surrender as a scary thing. I don't want to surrender. I don't want to, I don't want to give up what I have. And this verse says, no, when you do that, you know what happens? You grasp his love so much more fully. And what's the purpose of grasping his love? Paul keeps going. As we grasp his love, we might be transformed into Christ's likeness. And we already saw earlier that this is a reference to Christian maturity, this fullness of God. Growing in Christ is the final result. And what produces this maturity in our lives? It's comprehending the love of Christ. Help me grasp the love of Christ so that I might be filled with all the fullness of God. Have you ever noticed that link before? Sometimes I deceive myself into thinking that Christian growth is dependent on me proving my love for Jesus. But that's not what this passage says. To put it plainly, Christian growth is fueled by grasping Christ's love for us. What does 1 John say? We love him because he first loved us. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that they would more fully grasp the infinite love of Christ because that is how you grow into his likeness. In fact, love is the predominant theme in the book of Ephesians. He mentions love over and over and over again. Why? Because he knew that only Christ's love could fuel Christian growth. And if you were to skip to the end of your Bible, to the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, we read a prayer to the church at Ephesus. The same church. And what do we read about this church? I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, Yet you, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Paul wanted the Ephesians to grasp how important the love of Christ is. If you only were granted one prayer request, what would it be? If you want to pray a prayer that is built on the gospel, everything we read in Ephesians 1 through 3, in a prayer that fuels gospel living that we see in Ephesians 4 through 6, pray Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. Lord, I need your strength. I need your strength so that by faith I can con- that you can control every part of my life because I want to fully comprehend your indescribable love for me so that I might grow more like you each day. Have you forgotten the gospel today? Are you failing in gospel living? Where's the breakdown for you? In, in, the, in the passages, in, the, in chapters 4 through 6, there's a lot of practical instructions about relationships, about speech, about, about purity, all of these things. Where's the breakdown for you when you consider how maybe you fall short in your living for Christ? Or you fall short in your forgetfulness of His love? Where's the breakdown? Have you failed to grasp the depths of Christ's love for you by solely focusing on proving your love for him? You know what happens when we do that? 
We deceive ourselves into thinking by proving my love for Christ, he will love me more. And if I, if I love him more, then I will experience more of his love. That's not the gospel. Have you been isolating yourself from all the saints? Remember, this whole prayer is in the context of the church. That we are here so that we can build ourselves up in love. Are you seeking to grow as a Christian outside of his body, the church? Is that where the breakdown is? Is your breakdown where you failed to submit your heart to Jesus and let him be at home in your heart? That you have been withholding your heart from Christ. Perhaps you say, Lord, I'll, I'll let you into the living room. That, that, that back room back there with a bolt on the door, that's mine, okay? That's my space. Don't go there. Lord, you can be Savior the rest of my life, just not that room. Keep, that, keep yourself far away from there. Christ says, no, give me all of it. And as you give me all of it, you will grasp how much I love you. And when you grasp how much I love you, you will grow into my likeness. And that is why we pray for strength. Finally, we've seen our need for strength. We've seen the reason for strength. But I want to conclude by looking and considering the God of strength. You know, there are some prayers that God just loves to answer. He answers so many of our prayer requests. There's some prayer requests I think God just loves to answer in the lives of his children. So I want us to consider the basis for this prayer, the God of strength. Look in our passage. Before he even gets to the request, how does he describe whom he is praying to? I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Who are we praying to? We are praying to the Father who created all things, who is above all things. He is the sovereign Lord of all. That he is the authority to answer this prayer. I think that's what we see from this phrase, by whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he is over all. He alone has the authority to answer this prayer. But we also see that he prays that we be strengthened in verse 16 according to the riches of his glory. This idea of the riches of God's grace and glory is sprinkled all throughout the book of Ephesians. As we consider the God of strength and we consider this prayer, who are we praying to? We are praying to a God who has the authority to answer this prayer, but we also are praying to a God who has the willingness to answer this prayer. He has innumerable riches of grace. Finally, and most incredibly, I think, let's look again down in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To put this simply, he has the ability to answer this prayer. In fact, he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Even as you pray this prayer, Lord, give me strength by your spirit, with your power in the inner man. Recognize that he is able to do far more abundantly, not just than anything that you can ask for, 
but anything that you can even imagine. God is able to do in your life far more than anything you can think. Why? Why is God able to do this? Verse 21, it says, To him be glory, where? In the church. Where does God glorify himself? In the church. That is where he seeks to glorify himself, that we as his followers, as his children, are being matured into Christ. God says, that is where I glorify myself by taking sinful people, uniting them together, and making them look more like my son. Why is God so willing and able to answer this prayer for power is because this is the means by which he is most glorified in the church. There's nothing our Heavenly Father would love to do more than answer this prayer. If you pray this prayer in faith, Lord, strengthen me in my inner man so that I may gladly submit to you, so that I might fully grasp your love, so that I might be transformed into his image. He loves to answer that prayer. What are you praying for? So many burdens can fill our minds. The cares of this world can so often distract, but have you forgotten the most important thing to pray for? Have you forgotten to pray for what God would love to give you? Have you forgotten to pray for strength? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of strength. We thank you, Lord that you offer us your power. As we consider the trials of our life, we consider how often we focus on the outer man, we focus on our circumstances, we focus on our health, all these things, and we fail to remember the most important thing. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who answers prayer, loves to answer the requests of your children. Help us to pray.